Hello and welcome to the Culture File Debate. I'm Luke Clancy and for this Sour and Tide gathering we're going to stare, lost in thought, into the fire and into the heart of fire itself. An irreducible magic that no peer-reviewed explanation can quite extinguish. But also the key to the durable functioning of planet Earth. Even as it burns destructively and creatively real, fire is also a vision of an imaginary realm that restlessly sears us even when we close our eyes. The burning future into which we're steering our planet is being delivered via our compulsive, often abusive, relationship with fire. Even if in the modern world we hide it away in combustion engines and even electric ones, we never extinguish the chemical, magical presence of fire. And that's lucky, really. According to the American fire scientist Stephen Pine, the future of life on Earth will involve relocating fire from the wild to a central presence. And we're going to start by giving fire a central presence on the culture fire debate tonight. Gathered around the pale fire of their computer screens, we have some people whose work delves into fire in most of its manifestations. So welcome all. Welcome Cathy Smith. Cathy Smith is a researcher at the Leatherhume Centre for Wildfires, looking at how fire practices in farming, livestock keeping and hunting have evolved in recent history and how they have or haven't made their way into the modern world. Welcome, Cathy. Hello. Donald Lally is an architect and researcher at TUD. He's the co-founder of Annex, the group that curated the Irish Pavilion at the Venice Architectural Biennale in 2021. And his work in the imaginaries of data infrastructure led him to explore evolving ideas and forms of fire. Hello, Donald. Hi. Andrew Scott is uh, not the hot priest but definitely still bringing the heat. He is the Distinguished Professor of Modern and Ancient Fire Systems in the Department of Earth Sciences at the Royal Holloway University of London and author of Burning Planet, The Story of Fire Through Time. And also here with us tonight is Ronan O'Rahilly. He's an artist who uses performance and trance painting in rituals informed by post-colonial theory with a major interest in Joseph Boyce. On Bialtana in 2021, he held a ceremony and was rebaptized as a druid and in that role he's going to get us started tonight. Ronan has prepared a Sawan ritual for us. So now uh, Ronan is magically in another box on the Zoom, I would expect no less, uh, from a shaman such as yourself. Tell us a little bit about what uh, informs what we just uh, witnessed there, Ronan. Uh, yeah, so basically it's coming from an interest that I have um, around uh, Celtic spirituality and Celtic religion and how that might have uh, worked in the past and how it could work today. Like, so pre-Christian spirituality in a post-Christian Ireland, maybe. 
funnily enough, I, I find the best way to do it is actually through artwork um, rather than a, as a religion, a formal religion. Tell me more about, I, I'm very interested in all of your relationships with fire. Cathy say, I imagine it, with the line of work you've got into, you must have a, a kind of fascination with fire itself. I mean, is, is that something, is it a scientific alley you moved down or did you know that fire was what you wanted to study? No, it wasn't something that I, I kind of wanted to study per se. So I grew up like most of us in the UK, quite um divorced from fire we don't we don't encounter fire in our day-to-day -day lives except in in kind of the hearth or a campfire and I was actually employed to work on a development project um in Belize that was about fire and it was funded by the British government and I ended up writing my PhD kind of around that and it, it was kind of ironic because the project was trying to go there and fix problems that were brought about by the British as the colonial force in Belize, suppressing fire. And then this was a development project that was there to kind of um, try to help revive fire again. So it was kind of um, ironic that that was the means by which I also came to kind of understand the importance of fire and then want to kind of build my career on that. Maybe we, we would run around a little bit there. Donald, would you tell me about y your relationship with fire? It's like your relationship with alcohol. How, how does that all work? <laughs> well, the two perhaps are closely closely <laughs> together than uh, I care to admit. The, the, my, like most Irish teenagers, I suppose, like uh, I grew up in Nace and we'd have, um, you know, Halloween would be this time of like incredible sort of um productivity uh, we would find bits and pieces of wood for the weeks leading up to it and we'd go to a place that's a, a, a remove somewhere in the town we'd pile it up into a giant bonfire and we'd light it on halloween night and we'd dance around it like lunatics until the guards moved us on you know so that kind of fascination with just um the ritual was probably my first and most important relationship to fire the fact that it was this thing that was both terrifying but also exhilarating. You know, you could have these moments of just exhilaration around it. Not a campfire, but it would have to be a bonfire. It would have to be sublime, as you would say, overpowering. Andrew, so does a does a chair uh, in fire bespeak a, a childhood fascination? No, it's funny enough. I was always wanted to be a geologist, and I was very interested in fossils. It was only in two thousand and two. Um, I'd always avoided anything to do with human activity because I wanted to look at fire before humans. But in 2002, there was a major fire in Colorado called the Hayman Fire. And I was invited to go across to America to talk about my work on wildfire. And I went to see the Hayman Fire and was just absolutely fascinated by what I saw. It was totally unexpected. I was expecting to see a completely devastated landscape and it wasn't like that at all. It'd been a major fire... But a lot of the vegetation still survived. So I became quite interested in looking at modern fire. And as climate, people have looked at climate change, my work has become much more 
mainstream, if you like, rather than thinking, oh, it's just to do with the past, because an understanding of the past is going to help us understand the future. Ronan, I, I, I saw from your ritual earlier, you do have a, like, a little thing with matches, don't you? Yeah. I, um... Tell us about your relationship with fire, if, that's too, if it's too embarrassing to talk about your childhood fascination with matches. When, when did you notice it as, an, uh, as part of artistic practice? Yeah, uh, funnily enough, my answer is quite similar to Donald, because I'm also from Nace. And I have the exact same memories of bonfires were such a huge <laughs> thing. They're some of my earliest memories and some of my most exciting memories. And I think, I think I'm fascinated by the fact that that was such a big part of teenager culture. But you can trace it back thousands of years to Irish religious bonfires. Professor Andrew Scott, to set fire, we need an idea of what fire really does. So fire has, um, as you've said, quite a bad reputation. We we have certain feelings about it. It's sort of um, culturally we, we have a very specific attitude to it. And that misunderstanding is causing or has historically caused lots of problems. Yeah, we wouldn't be here without fire. I mean, we need three things for fire. Firstly, we need fuel. The second thing we need is a oxygen, because if we didn't have oxygen in the atmosphere, we wouldn't be able to burn anything. And thirdly, we need an ignition source. And before humans came along, the most common ignition source were lightning strikes. Now, as soon as you get plants on land, of course, they're building up oxygen in the atmosphere. And, of course, once you've got oxygen in the atmosphere... Fire is essentially a chemical reaction. If you have a lightning strike, the lightning hits a piece of wood, for example, that causes a chemical reaction which drives off flammable gases, mixes with the oxygen and causes a chain reaction. So we get fire. So ever since we've had plants growing on land and we've had oxygen in the atmosphere, fire has been part of how the earth works. And humans, if you like, evolved and came into a fiery landscape. So if you like, fire was already there. So, you know, our story and our interaction with fire is one of how have humans interacted with it, how they tried to learn to control it, or in many cases not learn to control it would be the issue. And as you say there, it's a story, and, and it's a story that's told in lots of different media, but one of the media is charcoal, which is, in, in your hands, a very sort of articulate substance. Yes, I think most people don't realise it just looks black, you know, and you sort of streak it on a piece of paper. But if you look at even a piece of artist charcoal and you look under a hand lens, you'll see that the anatomy of the plant is beautifully preserved. So that whenever you have a wildfire, for example, you usually get some kind of charcoal residue. And that charcoal provides us with the information about what was being burnt. It also tells us that we must have had wildfire, which means we had over 17% atmospheric oxygen, because if we had less than that, fires don't spread. And another thing is that if you have too much oxygen in the atmosphere, you get fires you can never put out because you can burn wet plants with above 35% oxygen. And, uh, Cathy Smith, it is something that maybe we, we had formerly a better understanding of or relationship with. You look at how uh, various cultures work with fire, and it, it's not all about extinguishing it. It's not all about getting rid of it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So when you don't have kind of heavy machinery, pesticides, fertilisers, and the kinds of things that we use today to manage landscapes... Fire is the kind of most important tool that you have to change your environment in ways that support things like farming, 
pastoralism, hunting, gathering. So people for probably as long as there's been people have been working in landscapes shaped by fire. They've been putting fire in. They've been trying to control fire in helpful ways. So, for example, fire can be used to clear vegetation. After a fire, you get fresh growth that's palatable to animals. um, So it's really useful in livestock keeping. You can use fire to force animals through the landscape to drive them when you're hunting. You can use fire to bring up various plants that kind of flourish after fire that you might want to gather. So yeah, fire is has been kind of an indispensable tool for humans. And kind of what one of the, the causes of our sort of current bad relationship is that a lot of the knowledge that you're talking about was sort of embedded, an oral knowledge. And some effort was made to extinguish it even, the knowledge. Yes, so um, knowledge about fire has been passed from generation to generation, but Over the past centuries, fire use has been suppressed in a lot of landscapes, and that's both been through policies directly about suppressing fire, because there's been this belief that fire is detrimental for ecosystems, that it's a threat to resources. Um, But it's also kind of indirectly, as, as livelihoods have changed, to involve machinery, pesticides, this kind of thing. And also, as kind of our lives have been industrialized and capitalized so yeah there's been this suppression of fire kind of indirectly as livelihoods have changed there's been suppression of fire through policies and both of those forces kind of spread around the world with european colonization so this idea that fire is kind of a bad thing originated in europe and then spread around the world and then was policed and enforced by the kind of settler colonialism yes um and then after independence in a lot of countries people kind of kept these fire suppression policies in place so in many places it's kind of it's either illegal to burn landscapes or it's heavily regulated you know there's an additional problem here because in fact because we now know that fire is such an integral part of many ecosystems you know people have always assumed that fire is bad if you've not lived if you're sort of a city dweller you think of excluding fire because obviously fire you cause call fire and you call a you know fire fireman to come and put it out but obviously in landscapes, it depends on which, what kind of landscape the fire occurs. In single countries, you have a problem like Madagascar, where maybe half of the country you need fire, the other half of the country you don't need fire. Therefore, to have a single policy for a whole country is going to be detrimental to at least some of the areas. Uh, Donald, Donald Lally, uh, that suggestion there that there is something sort of antithetical about fire and architecture, you know, that, that, that they're not cohabiting, it's a, it's a re- relatively recent notion. H- historically, there was a more um, kind of collaborative idea of fire and architecture. Yeah, there's one case study that I really quite like and I find very interesting is the one of the pre-Christian pagan Celtic goddess Breed and her fire temple in uh, Kildare. It was tended to by priestesses for six out of seven days a week, supposedly round the clock, and it was a fire that never produced any ashes. So it was a great fire, really. And it, it, but it wasn't just this, these perpetual fires, which you find quite, you know, widely in pagan cultures. They're not always just a, a kind of a religious object or a religious artifact or a technical object that's used by religious community they're also infrastructures so for her her fire temple was used as a 
as a, a means of lighting fires for local people. So they would go to the priestesses and they would ask for a, a torch fire and they would bring it and they would light their own fire using this torch. Or passers-by or travellers would, would ask for a torch of fire to light a campfire for the night. So this was a public utility, actually. This, tor this, this bonfire, this perpetual fire, was a public utility. When Ireland was Christianized and Breed may or may not have been converted into St. Bridget, there's some debate there whether they're the same, but let's say they are for the purpose of this debate, that fire temple remained in place. And the fire, until about the 16th or 17th century, so the Christians maintained the fire temple and maintained it as a public utility. So this piece of religious infrastructure was also a public utility that created an urban settlement uh, in the form of Kildare. So that kind of relationship between myth, symbolism, religion and infrastructure have always had some kind of deep interrelationship. And I suppose the point that was touched on previously is that modernity and infrastructure Modernity hates uh, cracks, it hates flaws, it hates um, breakdown. And that is, we have a new relationship between, I think you mentioned Pine at the top of the show, he talked about the modernization of Europe. Europe came to resemble like smoldering glow with, at the edges, the, prim, the, the primitive edges flickered the fire. So the idea that fire was primitive and was pushed out of our cities, removed from our cultures, extinguished if you weigh but i would say repressed in the form of electricity it became something else and hidden and managed in a very different way which brings with it its own kind of shocks and violence ronan they're, they're always in our landscape kind of images of fire which are sort of there to be harvested by uh, myth makers and artists of of all sorts i mean one of the one of the images or one of the landscapes that a lot of artists have had recourse to in ireland is a fire landscape and that's giant's causeway it's a it's a, a an image that's reappeared in the work of many artists yeah it's appeared in two artists who who are particularly interested in celtic culture and Celtic symbolism, the performance artist uh, Joseph Boys, and also the American artist Matthew Barney. So the Giant's Causeway is obviously a volcanic landscape that has cooled to basalt rock. Boys uh, was a German artist, but he was from a town in Germany which had Celtic roots. He was very taken by basalt stone in general as a sculptural material he used it in his sculptures and his in his performances and what he what he liked about basalt is the fact that like if, if you look at it you think of stone but it's gone through a process from volcanic magma or lava that's cooled into stone he he was very interested in transformation and change and things not off you know what you see is not the full story it's not just stone it's it has been fire to some degree in the past. There's some idea, this constant reoccurrence of fire images in art, in poetry, in literature. There is some idea that fire is involved in art, you know, that they're, the quality that, that is uh, subliminal, the quality that is sublime is often referred to as, as a fire or there's a, a flame within the work. It's, it's, it's very closely linked with the idea of aesthetic experience. Yeah, well, I... It's always been seen as something that's spiritual or maybe uh, beyond us in a way, something that we can't fully understand or mysterious. It's related to creation 
and life. Cathy, does that uh, recur in uh, in other cultures that you've studied? Do they, this kind of repetitive uh, use or reappearance of of images of fire? Yeah, I mean, from my observation, um, I've watched people going out to burn and to taking their children with them so it's it's kind of a practically learned thing so I've been in agricultural burns in Belize where there's been like five to seven year olds there um observing and learning yeah tell us about how one of those nights comes off so people are aiming to clear a a patch of rainforest for agriculture so they will use that for a couple of years and then they'll move to another place so they're, they're just trying to burn a little patch a couple of hectares usually um, and they will pay very careful attention to things like the wind direction, um, to the humidity, the, the kind of the weather that's been there for the past few days. And they will choose the right day to burn and they'll choose the right conditions to burn because they want to make sure that the fire doesn't escape. And they will start that fire from the right side of the plot so that it kind of moves into the wind rather than with the wind so that it moves slowly enough that they get a, a controlled burn because if it went with the wind it would move really too fast but also so that it, it's a kind of complete burn because if it went through too fast it wouldn't kind of combust the vegetation enough. So there's a there's a blend there of something that is ritual but is also uh, agricultural operation. Yeah absolutely and I mean it's it's very complicated in Belize specifically because um, the indigenous people there were converted to Catholicism. So a lot of the rituals that surround fire use are actually um, related to Catholicism. So people will say prayers and things before they burn. They will they will have kind of, I think they'll, they'll do some kind of things the night before as well. They burn incense, things like that. But I think it's um, actually come with Catholicism rather than a kind of indigenous religion from before. Yeah, no, I was going to say, one thing we mustn't forget is that many people now believe that having fire on humans, you know, if you like, controlling fire in this way, was actually an important part of the development of language. In other words, ancient peoples were gathering around a fire and therefore they were not just getting the heat, but also it was keeping animals away, it was providing the heat for maybe cooking, but also it, it offered that kind of social context for the development of language. So I think that fire has played such an important part, not only on the evolution of vegetation on land, on the sort of evolution of the atmosphere, but also when humans have begun to think about using fire on their development of their social activity, I think it's something we mustn't forget. Absolutely. Uh, D- Donald, there, Ronan was talking earlier about one, one form of a fire landscape in Ireland, which was, which was the Giant's Causeway. But you've been looking at, you know, that there is a contemporary version of the landscape that fire causes in Ireland, like particularly, say, in Mulhuddert. Yeah, so you're referring to a, the kind of landscape of data centres in Ireland. And yeah, like it's, it's, it's funny, we have this kind of history of um, networked infrastructure driven by fire in Ireland. So if you go back to the signal towers and Napoleonic signal towers that popped up across our kind of um, coastlines, they were, they, they were basically a beacon lit a, lit, a fire was lit on the Martello, the early Martello Towers as well. They were designed to transmit a message through fire in a network of hundreds of these towers across the island. So they were these kind of large-scale infrastructural systems that were basically 
uh, transmission systems, you know, that, 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 that relied on fire. And we have a very contemporary version of that now with these kind of network of data centers that are kind of appearing across our landscapes as well. And again, they, they kind of tie up, they're the perfect example of the problems of repression of fire. They're basically hot boxes that have to be cooled uh, using extraordinary amounts of energy. And if any of that fails, disaster can happen. During COVID, a, a huge data center blew up in Strasbourg and downed millions of websites. Um, so they are, and you see this with Bitcoin mines all over the world. You see these kind of, if you Google these images, you see these charred structures where something has failed, an electrical, um, electrical or fire suppression system has failed and buildings have burned to the ground. So we're seeing this, uh, an example of, of kind of management of heat in, in Tala with an Amazon data center, which is plugging itself into quite a lot of the city, the town center of Tala, uh, the galleries, uh, county council buildings and a huge amount of um, a huge amount of uh, uh, housing, so they're they're actually plugging into the excess and waste heat of these data centers. So the heat, there's massive amount of electricity input into them, but there's also a massive amount of heat that's coming out of them. And again, it's another way in which we as species are, you know, it's the latest kind of morphology of communication systems for us as a species, beginning with the campfire. And, and, and the data center is somehow connected to that lineage. It's part of that genealogy of kind of communication and social networking, which I suppose the campfire was the original mode or technical object for social networking. There's even research to show that the campfire changed us as creatures. So for instance, our primate relatives were the only, if not, or one of two who wake. We, we stay awake twice as long as our kind of ape um, relatives and there's there is research there's some thought out there that maybe the fire kept us awake longer in the evenings and changed our relationship to day and night kind of permanently so again there's these questions about like how the internet is feeding back on our brain chemistry but i think the very first tools that we were using to connect with each other also changed us as well the fascinating thing, idea about these data centers is that, you know, they're processing all sorts of uh, all sorts of components of our world and, and uh, the, the biggest of big data. And of course, some of the biggest of big data these days is about modeling, uh, modeling weather and more and more recently modeling fires. This is this is a procedure. Andrew Scott, maybe you'd tell us a, a little bit about to try and get control of something that maybe we will never get control of. Yeah, I think, first of all, our understanding of fire has just come on leaps and bounds in the last 50 years, in particularly because of satellite imaging initially, because because we can see fires in real time via satellites, we have a good idea now how fire is spread around the world. So that's the first thing. The second thing, as you say, people are developing and are trying to understand the relationship between fire and climate and climate change, and, of course, therefore trying to model what's going to happen in the future. Now, we've been doing that fairly successfully in part, and in fact, in terms of um, modelling, also modelling fire behaviour. Many fire um, people in, in Canada, for example, use computer models to work out where they should put their firefighters in. But the problem we're finding now in the last five years in particular is that the nature of fire is changing quite dramatically with climate change. And in fact, to such an extent that we're not now able to, to actually um, predict where fire is going to occur and how quickly it's going to move in the way we used to. 
So we're seeing many more disastrous large fires which are moving very much faster than we've ever experienced before. So we've we're now have got an even bigger challenge because we have too many variables in in sort of even in the sort of with big data number crunching, we have the problem with this major change. And of course, that's also been brought about by the fact we've been changing landscapes. We've introduced um, invasive species into landscapes, so very flammable grasses into fla- in landscapes we didn't burn before. One thing that people need to realise in Ireland and in Great Britain as a whole, in the British Isles, if you like, as a whole, is that as climate is changing, our relationship with fire is going to change quite dramatically and quite quickly. There are many places that we might not imagine to be very flammable, but actually over the next 10, 15 years, you're going to see much more fire in your landscape, and that's going to create a lot of issues to a number of different communities. Thank you all very much. That's, I'm afraid, all we have time for on the Culture File debate this time. So we're going to put our thumb on the candle, lest it gutter and fill the room with smoke. I'd like to thank all our guests, Kathy Smith, Andrew Scott, Donald Lally and Ronald O'Reilly, for joining us around the hearth. Your normal Culture File will return after the spook-stuff fire-powered weekend. Till then, bye now. Bye. 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 bye.